0: What was important between the two different cultures was uh, mutual respect. I mean, his him going out of his way to deliver this vase back to Remigius. Yeah, because as I said,
1: like all the Franks were like, "Oh yeah, that that's reasonable," except for one guy who just had to do
0: it. Some pay gang moron. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George. Hey, hey. Hey, We hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurs best to give a basic account of the major events in the life of a now dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their indiv- <laughs> individual character. Which is harder to do, but we're going to try anyway. So, George, what do we have going down today? Well, Aaron, I've gotten a little bit tired of doing all
1: this modernish stuff for so long. So, I'm taking us back. Far, far back. To a magical land for the invention of Twitter. That's right. <sighs> the early Middle Ages. And, no. in particular, today we're going to be talking about a man named Charles Martel.
0: Now, hang on there, George. You use the phrase Middle Ages. I thought they were called the Dark Ages. I, I appreciate the bait
1: you've laid out for me, but <laughs> here's here's what you have failed to realize, is that both Middle Ages and Dark Ages are actually both pejorative, so they're both shitty terms. Dark Ages is just a little bit more obviously shitty, but Middle Ages is... Um, it's predicated on the idea that there's a really good thing happening now and by now I mean the Renaissance and there was a really good thing happening in the ancient world and then there's everything in the middle it just it's it doesn't matter it's just the middle part that's what Middle Ages comes from whereas Dark Ages just comes from a elaboration of that to be even more shitty and say not only were they just the interim period it was an interim period that sucked anyway this is what stupid people in the early modern period <laughs> call it. Which is why the, um, the technical terminology is kind of ambiguous. So, like, early Middle Ages versus late Antiquity, like, nobody really knows where that line happens, because it all depends on, okay, when do you think we enter a new phase of history? When do you then call it early Middle Ages, as opposed to late Ancient Time? Kind of like, when
0: do the Middle Ages end? Nobody's really sure. But... I thought the Middle Ages was the politically correct term. I, I've got so much to learn. Well, that's the thing, is
1: this is, and this is sad. There is no way to refer to that period that is not in some way pejorative. <laughs> medieval, because medieval is just Latin, medium avim, which means the Middle Age, Middle Ages, Dark Ages, there really is no term we have that's not insulted, which is kind of sad when you think about it.
0: I'd just like to call it the time of King Arthur, who was real. well obviously and welsh right and welsh well that's uh that's all very interesting i think it's time to head down to the history lab and kick this bitch off that was enthusiastic let's do it happens to a society when a thousand year empire falls apart and everyone is just kind of milling around wondering how things are supposed to work? Find out today as we watch post-Roman Europe try to turn back time to the good old days. So, George, tell me. If you had to find one abnormal thing to put on a rice cake that would make it even better, what would you pick and why? Um, I've got to take issue once
1: again with the terminology here. Even better implies that rice cakes are palatable in the first place. That's true. That's... Which they honestly aren't. So it'd, pr- it'd have to be something really, really good to take something that's disgusting and make it Better and completely overshoot the idea of good in the first place, so I don't know, probably crack
0: yep <laughs> very good now is your the time where you ask me the same question
1: Well, Aaron, if you were going to put something on a rice cake why do, where are these these questions are fucking stupid anyway, if you were going to put something on a rice cake to make it not suck, what would it be
0: uh. Conan O'Brien's hair. What? <laughs> That's it. That's all I got. Computer, please bring up Charles Martell. Computer, please bring up Charles Martell. What's the deal? Huh. I have no idea. It's never done this before. It's just not recognizing the voice input, I guess.
1: Uh, maybe you're pronouncing it weird. Like, uh, Try widening the search to just like the list of Charleses or something. That'll probably bring it up.
0: Okay, uh, computer, please bring up Famous Charles's.: uh, Let's see. Oh, yeah, no, that's, that's Charles
1: XII of Sweden. Awesome Sabaton album about him, by the way, Corollas Rex.
0: Not what we're doing today, though. Gotcha. Uh, well, we might actually have to cover him if we can't get this damn computer to cooperate. Oh, oh, here's something.
1: Maybe the computer very much like its users, doesn't like French. Uh, Try saying the name in English. Maybe that'll work.
0: Oh, oh, great idea. Okay, computer, please bring up Charles the Hammer. Affirmative, my lord. All right, there he is. So, why don't you take it away,
1: George? Okay, Aaron, so before we dive into the actual material today, I just want to give a little bit of super, super broad background just to make sure everyone's on the same page because I realize that, unlike me, some people have lives and don't spend their time just reading about this crap. Right. So, Of course. The situation is late antiquity and Rome is kind of falling apart like It's not really clear when Rome falls apart, like, as we'll get to later, there is like a year people place it at, but Rome kind of stopped working as Rome a long time before that, um, because they essentially lost the ability to actually control their empire, and the armies stopped actually being Roman armies, and were pretty much all just barbarian armies that were hired by Rome, and sometimes those armies that were technically the Roman military would then attack Rome and take stuff. So, for example, the big sack of Rome in 410 A.D. was done by barbarian army under of the Goths, which was technically the Roman military at that time, um, because Rome didn't have any other army. So it's like, it's it just kind of, society was just falling apart and ceasing to function little by little, so there wasn't really like a definitive fall, it was just kind of, the institutions were failing, you know, communication between different parts of the empire was just kind of fading away, and everything's just kind of going to shit. At the same time, there's another huge transformation happening, which is that Christianization is going on... Sorry. Going on (laughs) all over Europe. So obviously, the Roman Empire had become Christian, and so the Roman aristocracy and elite were, by the end, all Christian. The people who were their neighbors... Some were, some weren't. So, like... some barbarian groups did become christian others didn't so you still had like lots of sort of mixed pockets of christians and pagans all over the sort of late roman world and as we'll see sometimes they got along well other times they didn't but there were um yeah just a sort of hodgepodge mix except in places like italy where due to the fact that it was the center of the empire, like, Christianity was super, super ensconced there, so you didn't really have any pagans left. And Italy is also the home of the papacy, the, you know, the office of the pope in Rome, which was kind of the only institution that actually, like, stayed in the West as everything else was falling apart. The papacy is pretty much the only thing that actually more or less kept it together in terms of not having some sort of drastic downfall and falling apart. And this is all in the West. Over in the East, because the Roman Empire, by the the end, was divided into an Eastern Empire and a Western Empire. Over in the East, Mm. things were fine. Like, you know, they had wars with barbarians and whatnot, but, like, the whole empire in the East was still perfectly well-functioning and doing its thing. Meanwhile, like, they're half-brother over the west was just like eating glue on the ground <laughs> and well the east was just kind of being really rich and fighting wars and generally doing a pretty good job and just trying to pretend that they're not related to the weird weird guy eating glue over
0: there that's uh, this is see this is good this is good background because even for me i was i was reading i was uh sort of vaguely interested sometime last week, like, what the hell caused the fall of the Roman Empire? How did that even happen? So I wanted to dig into it, and it was like this, just this clusterfuck of, like, events and and assassinations and politics, and I was just completely overwhelmed uh, by the complexity of what actually did cause the fall of the Roman Empire. I suppose that's why there's volumes and volumes of books on it.
1: Oh, yeah, no, it is it is immensely complex, and there is no one cause, just like there isn't really one point that it happened. Um, right. It's a long, long process. And there's a lot of argument about exactly how much continuity there was. So, at what point would people living in what was once the Roman Empire have recognized that there was a rupture, that something had changed? And how much would they feel that things were actually just sort of on a continuous trajectory? Because, like, obviously, even though the Empire ceased to function, like, people still lived, people still farmed, like, in many ways, life went on, but in other ways, from our perspective, things seem to have been completely different, but it's hard to say how much of that actually would have been perceived by the people there, and how much is only perceptible from our perspective, looking at, like, oh, they stopped building, like, these massive structures. Whereas, you know, if you're just some farmer in some part of the former Roman Empire, you wouldn't have been around the massive structures anyway, so how different would it have been after Rome fell versus before it?
0: Right. It wouldn't have changed all that much for you. In fact, well... I mean, that just reminds me of the, uh, the the Russians who were in the countryside and the, or in the mountains during the entire existence of the Soviet Union, who never even knew anything had happened. They were just farming away, and they're like, you know, in like the 1990s or the 2000s, they, somebody goes on an expedition, they find this person in the mountains, and they've just been there for 90 years. <laughs> they're like, what are you talking about, Soviet Union? I've just the, been like the hell growing... Is that? I've just been growing potatoes. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. So
1: it is a legitimate question um, about how much Rome fell from the perspective of the people living in it. But anyway, so that's just some some sort of basic big ideas that are going to come up again and again today that I just kind of wanted to get out there um, before we started. And now we are going to we are going to dive in. So, in the 5th century, which is when all of this is happening, everything's going to hell for Rome, um, one particular group of barbarians starts to come into ascendance in the north, and these guys were called the Franks. So, these are a Germanic barbarian tribe, one of those pesky Germanic tribes which Rome was always having to deal with, um, because they'd cause problems for Rome, or they'd be the solution that Rome would try to use to fix some other problem, because Rome was all about that. They would... um, towards the end as everything was falling apart they'd basically find a big barbarian tribe of scary bearded germans and be like hey you can like have this area on the border of the empire and live there as long as you don't let any other barbarians come through to us so you ended up with whole regions of the empire that they had just signed over to barbarian tribes and as part of that they the barbarian tribes had been given like official Recognition and stuff. So there are a lot of people in the 5th century who are simultaneously the king of some barbarian kingdom and also some official in the Roman Empire, even though who knows how much, you know, if they'd ever even been to Rome or if they spoke Latin or any of that, but you'd have these people who are, ah, yes, so-and-so, which is like a, a clearly Germanic name, who is the king of the such-and-such, oh, yeah, and is also, you know, like the... Magister Militum, which is one of the high military offices. So it's just kind of, Rome is losing control of its institutions. Right, yeah. And one of the people who are doing pretty well for themselves this time are the Franks. So they're centered in sort of northeastern France and part of Germany. And as I said, they're technically Roman officials um, in that they they're technically governing in the name of Rome. But does Rome actually have anything to do with it? Not really. Like, Rome doesn't have any real say of what goes on in the parts of its empire that are not ruled by them, which is most of it at this point. Um, and among these Franks is one particular family that consolidates power in the late 5th, early 6th century, and this family would later be known as the Merovingians. Merovingians, huh? Merovingians. So, right at the end of that century, the 5th century, um... There was one Frankish king who was especially powerful. Because among barbarians, you'll have, like, you know, the Franks. You might have ten different kingdoms that are all part of the Franks. So there's not just one king of any barbarian group for the most part. There's lots of little kingdoms that are all part of the same larger group. And so the most powerful Frankish king at this point, and the one who is going to be considered the founder of the Merovingian dynasty, as we'll see, was a dude named Clovis. And he was Clovis, son of Childeric, and he was technically a Roman official of some kind or other, um, though, as I said, probably didn't actually have very much to do with Rome. So, our boy Uh Clovis inherits his father's little Frankish kingdom in the year 481, when he is just 16 years old. Wow. Um, So yeah, talk about, like, you know, getting thrust right into the middle of things. Um, Well, we
0: just talked about one 16-year-old last week, didn't we? Did we? is that right? Or is he fifteen? How old was the the Japanese kid? Oh, oh, I forgot about the Japanese kid already.
1: Ah, uh, yeah, I think he was sixteen. You're right. Sorry, I was trying to think Jeez. Hemingway, and I was like, I don't remember what Hemingway was doing when he was sixteen. <laughs> I'm <geez>. just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying,
0: man, we missed our chance at sixteen to have our own kingdoms or or um, rebellions or resistances. Or something.
1: I mean, <laughs> yeah. For real, yeah. I just like, played Morrowind.
0: Yeah. What a waste of
1: time. Lame. <laughs>
2: lame. <laughs>
1: So, our boy Clovis, 16, inherits his father's little Frankish kingdom, and, uh, he really takes to it. Like, he immediately, like, starts laying out plans, like, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna go big or go home. So he starts to sort of consolidate his power, um, you know, make sure he's solidly in control of his little kingdom, and also to expand that little kingdom. Um. Okay. And, like most of the Franks, really all the Franks at this point, Clovis and his people were still pagan, but they were on the whole actually pretty friendly to uh, to Christianity. This is a this is a place where the Franks even though they were pagan got along pretty well with the um, Christian inhabitants who were the what are usually called Gallo Romans cuz Gaul is Roman France and so the the Gauls have been under Roman rule for you know 400 500 years and so they're pretty much thoroughly romanized but they're they're the Gallo Roman people who live in Roman Gaul and they're Christian. Clovis is pagan, but he gets along fine with them. Um, and so, yeah, before we go any further, I want to revisit the whole Roman Empire deal uh, to make sure okay. the exact situation is clear. Um, All right. So the last Roman emperor in the West who had pretty much zero control over anything since Germans and other barbarians (laughs) had been running the show for literally generations at that point was a little fellow named Romulus Augustulus. And his name is kind of funny because... Well, I'm gonna ask you, Aaron. What's Romulus?
0: (laughs) Who's Romulus? Romulus was the founder of Rome. Romulus was the founder
1: of Rome, exactly. And what about Augustus?
0: Uh... Augustus. I don't know, that one's escaping me.
1: That's the first Roman Emperor. Ah. And so Romulus founded Rome, Augustus founded the Empire. Um that Augustus turning into Augustulus, that's a diminutive. That's how you make it little, um in, oh. in Latin. And so the last Roman Emperor's name was Romulus the Little Augustus, when the first when the founder of Rome had been Romulus and the first emperor had been Augustus, we now have Romulus Little Augustus. is the last one and his career is just as sad as his name would suggest it's kind of pathetic (laughs) okay so little romulus um was the son of a guy named orestes who had been the magister militum which is the chief military officer of the previous emperor a dude named julius nepos whom he had overthrown and sent into exile, because that's really what you do when you're a military figure in the late Roman Empire, you overthrow the emperor. And so he'd sent him into exile over in Pannonia, which is across the Adriatic and north, so it's kind of modern-day, like, Hungary, southern Hungary region. Um, Mm -hmm. That's where the, the deposed emperor Julius Nepos is chilling, while Orestes is now taking control of Italy. And so Orestes makes his son... Romulus Augustulus, the emperor. Um, Despite the fact that Julius was still alive over in Pannonia, and most of the empire outside of Italy still recognized him as emperor, not Romulus Augustulus and Orestes in Rome. And this included the Greeks, who, as I said, are running an actually perfectly well-functioning and healthy empire
0: over to the east. I'm sensing there might be some conflict.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but he controls Italy, so he's emperor, technically. Um, even though, then again, even when Nepos, who was technically recognized by the whole Empire, it's not like he had any more power, really, because of how much the Empire was fragmented and just the institutions were gone. So, does it really make that much of a difference?
2: Probably yeah, it's not. Yeah, like,
0: it's like being president of... it's like the, what, what's it, uh, the president in Fallout 3 is just a computer. And he's, like, barely holding things together and he's pretending to be the president. It's like, it's a nuclear wasteland and nobody gets along. Classic. Uh, Man. So, um...
1: Orestes, as I said, um, you know, had done this rebellion and kicked out the emperor. And, of course, as the Magister Militum, the chief military officer, that means he was technically in charge of lots and lots of barbarian soldiers who were stationed in italy and were basically the bulk of the roman military and all these barbarians who are just stuck down in italy kind of want to be given some lands to permanently settle because that's usually how military service works in the ancient world you do it for long enough you get your retirement package is you get land to farm okay um and so they're really wanting to like settle down well orestes doesn't uh doesn't give it to them it's like Mm, yeah, no, I don't think so. So, the German soldiers, um, you know, the, the barbarians of various Germanic tribes, um, they rebelled in 476 under a chieftain named Odovaker, and they defeated and killed Orestes. So, RIP in peace. So, they they won. <laughs> yeah, they easily won, okay. because they were basically the whole army. So Right. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Hey, I have an army that's composed of German barbarians. They want land. I have land. They can't have it. Oh, God, what are you doing? No, put that down. (laughs) Yep. So, and then when Odovaker
1: and his army arrives at Ravenna in northern Italy, which Ravenna had been the capital of the Roman Empire since 402, and before that, it was in Milan, because Rome hadn't actually been the capital for a very, very long time. Rome had kind of gone by the wayside and was just viewed as like a dirty nasty place nobody really wanted to be and so the emperor had lived in milan from the um the fifth from the uh the fourth early early to mid fourth century and then after milan it went to ravenna so like yeah rome is just kind of there but it's not really the most important city in italy
0: anymore interestingly enough fascinating Um, for for the namesake you know yeah no and that Um, really
1: was the only thing Rome had going for it was the name that was the only reason that anybody cared about it um so Odoacer arrives at Ravenna and deposes Romulus Augustulus as emperor. But and this is this is really nice. He didn't hurt him. He actually just sent him away into the countryside in southern Italy to live with his relatives and also gave him like a really really generous uh pension package. Like he gave him like a, a huge amount of uh of money and was like, "You know, I'm just going to pay you this money every year and you just stay down there in southern Italy with your family." And it, it worked well. So, like, good guy, Odovaker. Yeah. Because, let's face it, like, he totally could have just fucking vibe-checked the kid, and nobody would have cared.
2: Yeah. But he's like, it's you true. know what?
1: Like, this kid didn't ask for this. His dad made him emperor, so I don't want to hurt him. So, like, I really, I really respect that about Odovaker.
0: Yeah, respect to Odovaker. Hell exactly. Yeah.
1: So, after this, the Roman Senate, which literally has been meaningless for centuries, like, the Senate obviously started to be become meaningless about the, you know, end of the first century BC when the Roman Empire was starting mm. and the Republic was dying. That's when it started to be meaningless. It was really meaningless by, you know, like, the, the second or third century outside of just being a marker of social class in terms of actual authority. So imagine what it is by, you know, the fifth century. Like, it's literally just the representatives of all the rich families in rome sit together and like vote on who they're going to give some sort of like honor to it's like let's vote our thanks to so and so okay wow. like they it's have like lit- the
0: party planning committee yeah they
1: have literally <laughs> no power to do anything real anymore Ugh. but they vote um with odoacer's approval of course that the imperial insignia so the um you know like the the purple cloaks and all the things which are markers of an emperor are sent from Rome to Constantinople to the emperor in the East, whose name is Zeno, and thus the, what that decides is that there's going to be no more Western Empire because if you if you send away the imperial regalia, that's sort of renouncing the idea that there's going to be an empire. Um, How about that, and so the Roman Senate, with Odoacer's approval, which smart that Odoacer was just like. Yeah, sure, I don't care about, you know, if there's this idea of empire. I'm happy just being in charge here. I don't need, uh, you know, there to be some sort of title involved. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, Zeno, the emperor in the East, accepts it, um, and he issues a decree which formally makes Odovaker a Roman patrician, which is the um, the higher social class in Rome, also something that has been meaningless for centuries. Um because originally during the Republic there were actually like political offices were broken up by your social class so you could only hold certain offices if you were of a certain social class and sometimes that actually worked the opposite way you would think so you had people who were patricians actually renouncing that status and entering a lower social class because they wanted to run for a certain office (laughs) see but by this point meaningless um mm-hmm. and the Z- zeno also um, makes Odoavaker the gov- legal governor of italy technically you know in the name of zeno as emperor Odoavaker is going to govern italy he yeah. also like said um that He really thought Odovaker should give the Western Empire back to Julius Nepos, who's still chilling over in Pannonia, but that he wasn't going to push it like you do you, man. I just think it'd be cool if you did that. Well, Odovaker accepted the nice gesture and became a Roman patrician and the governor, but he did not bring back Julius, who remained chilling in Pannonia. He did, however, um, issue everything officially in the name of Julius Nepos as emperor. Uh, you know, he put him on the coins and put his name on the laws and stuff. He just didn't actually let him come into the kingdom. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so Julius Nepos is there in Pannonia while Rome is being ruled in his
0: name, and he's not allowed to go there. But he's he's just chilling, you know. He's kicking back. Yeah. He's, a, on a he, he just vibing though. Yeah, just on a on a what, what's that What do you call those things? A pool chair. yeah Yeah. so that's that's what uh, that's what julius nepos is doing can you imagine though if someone like if like you were chilling out and you know you were retired or whatever and you know you're getting your second Mai Tai, and you find out that somebody's running like a massive corporate somebody's running google and pretending like you're the one running it and putting (laughs) your name on everything can you imagine i don't know that's funny. Yeah,
1: it's kind of funny, actually. Um, well, a few years later, uh, Julius got his ass killed oh, in 480. Um, he was assassinated by mm. his own men, but it's, it's not entirely certain who was behind the assassination. Um, mm. So Julius was definitely plotting to try to take over Italy from Odovaker. Um, So there are a couple possibilities. It might have been that his men were just really tired of it and didn't want to go try to take over Italy and just were like, you know what? We're just going to fucking kill him before he makes us invade Italy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's a possibility. Alternatively, and I really like this, it might have been all planned by the local bishop, Glycarius, because... Guess what? Glycarius had been the emperor that Julius Nepos had deposed to become emperor. Glycarius is the emperor, and then Julius Nepos gets the Greeks to recognize him as emperor, and so he goes, kicks Glycarius out, and makes him become a bishop.
0: Wait, hang on a second.
1: Explain that again? So Glycarius is the emperor in the West... Um,
0: oh.
1: Of various. Okay. It's hard to say who's really a legitimate emperor or not because you have so many emperors and most of them last very long. And so, like, you know, you'll have two emperors simultaneously being proclaimed. But in any case, the one who's actually in Rome, the claimant, is Glycarius. But Nepos convinces the Greeks that he has a better claim to be emperor. And so they were like, okay, we'll help you. And they help Nepos drive Glycarius out of Rome. And become emperor. And so then Nepos forces Glycarius uh, to become a priest um, because that's a way of sort of relegating political opponents, is just like forcing them to become clergy. Yeah. Um, But Glycarius had, by that time, had become a bishop. And it is possible that he may have been behind the assassination of Nepos as payback for kicking him out of being the emperor and forcing him to become a priest. Damn. (laughs) In any case, it's hard. There's no, it's impossible to tell what really happened. But in the year 480, you know, he dead. Julius Nepos got killed.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I, I really like
1: the bishop theory, though.
0: I like the bishop theory, too. It's funny to imagine, like, a, a little guy who is like, thrown out. And he's like, ah, I don't want to be a bishop or whatever. And he's like, you know what? I'll just have this guy killed.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so after that happens, uh, Zeno, the emperor in the east, pretty much just throws his hands up in the air and says, fuck it. And he legally abolishes the Western Roman Empire and says, you know what? It doesn't exist anymore. If there's only one Roman Empire, it's in the East. I don't give a fuck. Um, well, he so, has all the power, so... Yeah, because he's know. doing fine. He doesn't need the West for anything. So right. Odovaker becomes king of the Kingdom of Italy because now there's no Roman Empire, so he doesn't have to govern in the name of an emperor. So he's just going to be the king of Italy. Um, and with the empire legally dissolved all the little bits and pieces of the Western Empire are kind of just milling around and wondering what they're supposed to be doing now that they don't have like a larger body that they're allegedly part of. Right. And that is what takes us back to Clovis in 486. So remember, he'd become king after he inherited at age 16 and had been kind of expanding and solidifying
0: and trying to forge a more powerful kingdom. All right, so let me... Let me ask you a question. Is balkanization the correct word for this kind of thing? Um, like where you've got this division of a massive thing into all these little parts, and everyone has to figure out what the hell they are
1: kind of um, but there's 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 different factors that aren't involved in balkanization because you also have. All these new groups, like these barbarian <clears throat> kingdoms, that are kind of just showing up. So mm-hmm. it's it's, more, it's even more complex than balkanization because you not only have the people who were there, you have them fract- fracturing, and you have new groups coming in and sort of setting up shop at the same time.
0: Right. Okay, that makes sense.
1: Yeah, so it's very
0: confused. Um,
1: so anyway, so Clovis. Um, Clovis, the young king, is determined to, you know, hit it big. Um right. his neighboring kingdom over to the west was the kingdom of Soissons, which is in northern France, and it is ruled by a man named Syagrius, who was the <laughs> uh the last Roman command or Syagrius was the son of the last Roman military governor of Gaul, which is you know Roman France right. um and so when Rome ended um Cyagrius just kind of um kept up his thing and pretended like nothing has really happened which is why the kingdom of Soissons is actually considered the rump state of the roman empire are you familiar with that term no so that's a, when a when a nation breaks apart um the one that kind of is considered the one to have the most continuity with the original in terms of government is called a rump state so okay. when Yugoslavia <laughs> breaks up, um, the, the rump state is Serbia and Montenegro, um, okay. because they're the ones that kind of had the continuity of government. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, the Roman Empire has basically now been reduced to a little kingdom in northern France.
0: So um, like the Enclave in Fallout 3. <laughs> yes.
1: So okay. they're sort of the last still kind of Roman state, and they're outside Italy, because Italy is now ruled by, you know, King Odovacar. Um so despite being isolated from the surviving portions of the Roman Empire, Siagrius uh, actually manages to maintain a pretty good degree of like Roman authority and custom in northern Gaul and like actually runs like a nice little tiny little mini Rome um and his state ends up outliving the end of the Western Empire itself since as we talked about, you know, the last emperors were overthrown or killed in 476 and 480 um, whereas, you know, Syagrius is going strong with his little mini-Rome in northern France until yeah. uh, Clovis decides that he's going to take over. Um, so in 486, Clovis makes an alliance with another Frankish king named Chalaric, and they fight a war against Syagrius and his kingdom. Um, Clovis decisively defeats Syagrius and brings the kingdom of Soissons into his kingdom as a new part of it. But when the battle that Clovis decisively wins was about to commence, um, his ally, Chaleric, decided that he'd rather just not. So he actually withdraws his forces <laughs> to the side and he leaves Clovis and his forces alone to wait to see if it looked like Clovis was going to lose, at which time he was then planning to attack them from behind and make a deal with Cyagorius to split Clovis' kingdom.
0: Oh! Top ten anime betrayals.
1: Yeah. So, Clovis, as we um, said one decisively. And so he was pretty pissed about uh Chaleric. So he invades Chalric's kingdom and captures Chaleric and his son and puts them in prison and takes their kingdom.
0: Like you do. I mean that's yep. the only that is the logical response.
1: Yeah. Um he also forces them both Chalric and his son to become priests because that's a thing you do. <laughs> um at some point and it's really unclear the chronology or what exactly happened, at some point they are both executed possibly for trying to um You know, patch some sort of assassination plot. It's really unclear, but at some point, after having both been forced to become priests, they are both executed. But that's like years down the line, and it's really unclear what the situation was.
2: Mm,
1: Okay. So, even though Clovis, as I said, was still pagan, he was on very good terms with Christians, especially um, a bishop named Remigius, who was the bishop of Reims in what's now France. And after that big battle against Syagrius, there was, of course, a lot of stealing of all the cool stuff in cyagris's kingdom to bring back home because in the ancient world that's what you do when you win you find cool things to then take back to your city to put up and <laughs> you know put a label on it we took this from so and so um <laughs> that's just how it works you know you take stuff yeah. so during this um whole you know phase a church was pillaged which didn't really mean anything to the pagan Franks because doesn't really you know to them it's they don't really you don't know what a church is. But in any case, they um they took an artifact which was called the vase of Soissons, and it was apparently super super special. But there's also very little information about what it actually was, other than the fact it was super super cool. Um, <laughs> it's believed to have been a like, a vase that was carved wholly out of a chunk of some sort of semi-precious stone. So, you know, most vases are obviously made of, like, you know, ceramic or something. They're cast or whatnot. But this, it's believed to have been a vase that was actually carved out of one chunk of some sort of semi-precious stone, you know, like onyx Holy or shit. something. Um, wow. But in any case, it's unclear what exactly it was, but in any case, it was stolen. Vase um, so gone. So Remigius, the bishop, uh, he sent messengers to Clovis begging that the vase be restored. You know, he said, you know, even if, even if nothing else that was stolen from the church, um, gets, you know, brought back, just please give us back Mm. the vase. It's really cool. We really like it. (laughs) Um, and Clovis was, um, Clovis was very amenable to this. And so he agrees to do so. Um, and he claims the vase as his share of the loot, but there were really very, very particular rules in Frankish law about how things get divided up during a war, um, how plunder gets distributed. And any huh. warrior had the right to demand his share of any physical object. So Clovis says he wants to claim the vase as his share so that he could give it back to Remigius and that he wouldn't take any other part. So he just take the vase and he wouldn't take a share of anything else. And the soldiers would get to divide up all the gold and stuff among themselves and all he wanted was the vase. Um, that
0: sounds more than reasonable.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And like, and everyone agrees this is perfectly reasonable, except there's always got to be someone who's a dick. <laughs> so one Frank must have been a real bastard because he wouldn't accept that arrangement and demanded his share, which, you know, would be like a one in however many thousand parts of the vase and invokes his right to demand an equal division, so he smashes the vase with his axe and takes a little tiny chip from it as as his one in however many thousands share. What a dick! Yeah, like, talk about being just an absolute cock. Like, what's he (laughs) want with... Literally, it's pure spite. Like, it's a little tiny chip of rock from smashing, like, a beautiful, priceless object just because he wanted to be a dick. So, Clovis is really upset by this, obviously, But since the soldier had technically acted within his rights, there's not much Clovis can do. So Clovis sort of gathers up the broken bits of the vase and really sadly gives them to Remigius and says, you know, like, I I really tried... But so-and-so is just a fucking prick. Um, So that's just, like, sad to imagine. Like, I'm imagining Remigius is, like, looking out the window because he's hoping Clovis is going to come with the vase. And Clovis just sort of sadly walks up the street with, like, this box of fragments.
0: (laughs) It's really sad to think about. You can just think about Remigius. Clovis, what became of the vase? (laughs) Clovis is just like... I. I I don't know what to say. And then he like (laughs) spins away and runs crying into the hills. (laughs) Yeah. So it's, it was just really
1: sad, but the next year Clovis was, um, you know, going about his business, uh, kinging around whatever he's doing (laughs) uh, when he happens to run into Mr. Bastard again on the street. Uh oh, And this time Clovis wasn't going to let it pass. Uh, He, he just, it all comes flooding back. And so he walks up to him, on the street and he reaches over and knocks the man's ax off its little hook on his belt. And then when the dude bends down to pick it up, Clovis splits his skull in two with his own ax and says, what you did at Soissons is now done to you.
0: Oh my God. Wow.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So like talk about just like the red mist descending, like Clovis just sees him on the sidewalk and just remembers it all. He remembers how sad Remigius looked. And it's just like, you know what? (laughs) Fuck this dude. (laughs) just this is for Remigius yeah so like Clovis is a really interesting interesting figure because remember like he's still he's still a pagan at this point but like he's really good friends with the Christian bishop and you know like literally sacrificed his share of all that plunder to try to do a favor for the bishop there's like it's it's kind of interesting to think about oh yes there's the guest star of the show do <laughs> you know what I mean it's like it, it's odd you don't...
0: Yeah, yeah, it is. It's interesting that he was on such good terms with the Christians, be, being a pagan himself, um, but also that he had, it seems like, some kind of a, an understanding that um, what was important between the two different cultures was uh, mutual respect. I mean, his him going out of his way to deliver this vase back to Remigius. Yeah, because as
1: I said, like all the Franks were like, "Oh yeah, that that's reasonable," except for one guy who just had to do it. Some
0: pay gang moron
1: <laughs> yeah exactly exactly <laughs> oh man so clovis continues expanding and conquering until he had pretty much all of france added to his kingdom Perfect. and after the whole soissons incident um he's really careful to be respectful of the christian population and to protect uh the, the clergy and the churches and make sure no harm comes to them and he also stays chummy with remegius And eventually, he actually marries a Catholic princess named Clotilda. Oh, Um, shit. You'll notice Franks are really into names that start with C. I was gonna say. (laughs) Um,
0: I've never heard of a Catholic
1: princess. (laughs) I mean, most of the royal families in Europe were... Catholic. oh i
0: don't mean it like that i was thinking of like i was thinking like a princess within the catholic church I don't know oh why. yeah
1: yeah no this is just yeah no she's a, a princess from burgundy which is a neighboring kingdom um, oh okay, okay yeah so just it's it's that he's the important thing is that he is a pagan is marrying a catholic princess um, Gotcha. so despite this clovis is actually really resistant to converting uh himself especially after uh his infant son who had been baptized secretly by uh, by his mother since you know his mother's Catholic um, falls ill and died, and so Clovis thinks it must have been bad luck from being baptized, and so he's super resistant to this. But and it's not really probably just eventually Remigius, uh, you know, having both your wife and like your your bro both be both be Christian when you're not, I guess, um, eventually brought him over. But he decides finally in 1508. Um, that he's going to become Catholic. And so on Christmas Day, he is baptized by Remigius. And this is really a game changer for the history of Europe. Uh-oh. Because, you know, A, he has this big and powerful kingdom, which is now, you know, Catholic rather than pagan. And it is Catholic Christian and not Aryan Christian. Because most of the k- Christian kingdoms at this point were Arians. Um, So, Arianism is a heresy in early Christianity that teaches that Jesus is really cool, but he's not God. Um, Gotcha. He's the coolest thing that's not God, but he's still not God. And as you can imagine, that kind of has a lot of implications for how you view the whole theology around, you know, the crucifixion and the resurrection and everything, if he's not actually God. Right. So it's a huge split um, in the church between Catholic Christians who are the ones who say Jesus is God, and Arian Christians who say Jesus is really cool, but he's not God. And for most of the bar- almost all the barbarians who were Christians were Arians because the missionaries who had originally who had originally converted them were Arian Christians. Gotcha. So you had kind of this weird situation where the sort of Romanized populations that are just living in places are generally Catholic Christians where these barbarian kingdoms that are kind of ruling over everyone are comprised of Aryan Christians. And sometimes they got along fine. Like Odovaker was an Aryan um, and he, did, he didn't have any issue with living around the Catholics. But other times there was a lot of open conflict. Um, but so this is kind of the first time that a big barbarian kingdom becomes Catholic and not Aryan.
0: I wonder if that split you know, that the Romanized population was more familiar with, uh, or they went more Catholic versus the um, formerly pagan population going it just can. It just occurs to me that the Romanized population would have already had the understanding built in that, say, you know, Rome was founded by Romulus, who didn't they believe he was divine or did that come later?
1: Um, yeah, that's a, that's a huge can of worms about divinization in Roman religion. Um, that's a huge can of worms, but yeah, no, um, there are, there are people who get divine status in Rome, but it's, it's very, very rare early on and later on becomes more common. Um,
2: yeah. Okay. So anyway, so this
1: is just, this is a huge thing that you now have a large Catholic kingdom in Europe. Um, So, in 511, so three years after converting, uh, Clovis dies and he leaves behind a Catholic Merovingian kingdom. Um, Remember, he's considered the founder of the Merovingian dynasty, which covers pretty much all of France and Western Germany. But on his death, his kingdom was partitioned among his four sons, Theuderic, Claudimer, Childebert, and Clotaire. As I said, they really like seas. and yeah. this ends up actually being a, a recurring problem with the Franks is that they always tend to divide things up among your sons when you die instead of keeping it united. So someone will build a really big kingdom and then they'll die and it'll get divided in five pieces. And then, you know, eventually someone will come out on top and unite it again and then they'll die and it'll get divided again. Right. Um, so over the next few centuries, this process of dividing and unifying and fighting each other and then fighting other people... Uh, just is non-stop, and the Merovingian kings, weirdly enough, actually keep getting weaker and weaker politically um, in these little kingdoms, and in theory, it's still all one kingdom of the Franks, but it's made up of a bunch of little kingdoms within that, and over time, all those little kingdoms kind of develop into two like around two poles of influence, uh, the Western Kingdom, which is called Neustria, which is sort of the northern part of France and Central France, and the Eastern Kingdom, which is called Austrasia, which is in the Western Germany in the Rhineland, um, and all the little kingdoms kind of group around those two poles. And so, overall, the Merovingian King Kingdom becomes kind of less and less of a real one thing, and more and more these two separate kingdoms. Um, which are all comprised of smaller kingdoms. And, spoiler alert, this division between Neustria and Austrasia ultimately becomes France and Germany, respectively.
0: Damn! So that's where they came from.
1: Yep. Um, So, in that eastern kingdom, Austrasia, um, by the 8th century, the kings were basically just figureheads with a ceremonial role. Um, while the real power was held by a guy called the mayor of the palace, who was basically the chief of staff to the king, and he's elected by the nobility. Uh-huh. Um, while the king is just kind of, like, he's the king, and he's obviously the most important person, but he doesn't actually have very much power. Things are really run by the mayor of the palace, which is elected, a, a position elected by the nobility. Gotcha. Which is, yeah, kind of a weird and... Interesting system when you think about yeah,
0: it. Yeah, yeah. So it's not even like a monarchy anymore. it's No, like,
1: yeah. It's actually it's a lot like the situation in Japan with the shogun and the emperor. Because the emperor is divine and obviously the most important person, but the one who actually runs Japan is the shogun. Right. It's kind of like that um, if you think about it. Eventually, though, uh, this office of the mayor of the palace. Itself becomes hereditary, even though it's originally elected by the nobles. And it comes into the possession of a family called the Pippinids. (laughs) Um, They're called that because sort of the ancestor is named Pippin. Um, So Pippinids. Hobbits! (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, So in 718, a man called Charles inherits the office of mayor of the palace from his father, Pepin and Pepin had successfully brought all the Frankish kingdoms back together. Um, Of course, Pepin isn't the king. Pepin is the mayor of the palace, but he's united all those Frankish kingdoms back together, so Charles inherits, or didn't inherit, because after all, he totally wasn't the king, a unified Frankish state. um, Oh, shit. From Pepin. And I think this would actually be a great time to stop for the honorable mention. Oh, man. I'd had it further on in the document, but this is kind of a big a big division point, so I think we should probably do it here.
0: All right, let's talk about this week's Honorable Mention. Those of you who don't know, Honorable Mentions are the section of the show where we fill you in on a story or a character or a thing that we discovered while researching that was interesting, but didn't warrant a full frickin' episode. I mean, not everything needs to be 90 minutes long, so here we go. Uh, this week's, uh, uh, uh honorable mention, is uh, well, I went back to the modern period because I literally don't care about any other part of history. <laughs> well, fuck you too, Aaron. Oh, man. Uh, that's mostly a joke. Um, but I was one of my favorite topics of all time is cosmonauts. Ooh, I like
1: where this is going. Yeah.
0: You might be asking why, though, and I would just say it's basically because they were the grunts in the Mad Max caravan that was the Soviet space program. (laughs) (laughs) The witness me kind of guys. Um, And when you go reading about cosmonauts, you find some weird shit. You got animals in space, shotguns packed to fight off bears after reentry, vodka supplies. It's really something else. I think Mad Max in space is probably the best way to... To, to cover it. So, <clears throat> as a surprise to no one, I am going to cover one of these cosmonauts today as an honorable mention. And the one I have selected for this week is Valentin Vasilievich Bondarenko. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I, that name, though, Bondarenko, it's hard to beat. There's a lot of hard sounds in there. There are. Yeah, so Bondarenko was pretty much your typical Soviet in the early days. His Ukrainian father fought on the Eastern Front in World War II, and his mother was a revolutionary at home. And he rode a bear to school. As did he have
1: those really, really big glasses that Soviets always seem to have?
0: Yeah, he had the big glasses that Excellent. flappy hat. You know? Oh hell yeah! Yeah, he's a scrappy little dude. And as a young boy, Bondarenko developed, as I did, an interest in aviation and pioneering aviators. And from the very first time he learned that people could fly in these things called planes, he was fascinated by it all. So as a boy, he joined a little aviation club where he developed his interests even more, and when he grew older and it came time for him to either join the academic dialectic or join the military, He elected to join the military because the dialectic had neither planes nor interesting people. So Bondarenko joined... I mean, that's fair. I know. (laughs) So Bondarenko joined the Voroshilov Aviation Military Academy, but eventually graduated from the Armavir Military Pilot Aviation School in 1957, but not before marrying a nurse named Galina Semenovna Rykova and having a kid with her... This was a big year, 1957. It was a big year for Bondarenko. He got married, he had a kid, he graduated. And on top of all that, guess what else happened in 1957, baby? Sputnik Um. 1 had launched. Oh! Ah, I also have a Soviet handgun manufactured in that year. That that doesn't surprise
2: me at all.
0: So after uh, graduation, (laughs) Bondarenko worked his way through the Soviet Air Force and made rank as senior lieutenant in 1959. Only a few months later, he was selected along with 19 other potential cosmonauts to join the space program. Bondarenko was the actually the youngest member, and I don't know if this has anything to do with his nickname literally becoming... Like, they nicknamed him Tinkerbell. <laughs> uh, and I'm guessing it's because he was the littlest, youngest, spunkiest Bondarenko on the team. So now Bondarenko is on the space squad. This is the first group of cosmonauts ever, ever, and since they are indeed the first, they are intended to be the first men in space. So Bondarenko begins his training in a program that was brand new and had never been tried before and was of course funded or not funded but well funded definitely but supported by the Soviet Union. Which was known for cutting corners, lying on papers in order to not get shot by your commissar. I refuse
1: to believe these capitalist
0: slanders. (laughs) (laughs) So Bondareco trains for one full year in this brand new program. State-of-the-art shit. Definitely no lying about the results of the tests every day. And he was uh, selected to perform, specially selected to perform a two-week-long endurance experiment slash test in which he was to be subjected to the conditions of a pressure chamber. Inside this chamber, he would work in low-pressure conditions in a very small space filled with air that was over 50% oxygen. And for reference to all you non-chemists out there, the air you are breathing right now only contains about 21% oxygen. So that's over double the typical oxygen level of, uh, of an Earthling environment. <clears throat> but if you are a full-blown chemist, you may also know that oxygen is not actually flammable. Um, like, we think about, we go, oh my god, the oxygen, like, you know, you watch Castaway, and and uh, Tom Hanks is blowing on the fire, and he's like, ah, like, it's gonna, you know. It's not flammable, but it's an oxidizer, which means that if there is a heat source of some kind and something catches fire, it goes up a lot quicker. So in a 50% oxygen pressure chamber, you really got to be careful with, with heat obviously makes sense um and nobody seems to have thought about this before putting bondarenko in his pressure chamber because at the end of the day on march 23rd um 1961 bondarenko made a couple of fatal mistakes and these weren't just bondarenko's fatal mistakes they were the mistakes of the whole program space travel at this time is a very young science so people just aren't thinking about what kinds of hazards the normative function on planet Earth might cause in space when you try to supplement things like, oh, I don't know, taking a shower or making a cup of coffee. You know, like you just don't think it. You're like, it's zero g. What, you know, just heat it up. it Doesn't matter. So anyway, t- t- Bondarenko is stuck in here for two weeks, and he's he's no um, he's no basement dweller. He cleans himself up. And so one of the things he does to, to keep the, uh, the stank at bay is he swabs himself clean with a cotton ball. Um, and he does this by dipping it in alcohol and swabbing, you know, his face. I don't and,
1: like where this one's going.
0: Yeah, nobody thinks anything of it because it's just swabbing your face with alcohol. So when he finishes his alcohol bath, he tosses the cotton ball aside. Where it promptly lands on a red hot electric burner he'd been warming up to prepare his evening tea. Of course, the whole thing bursts into flame. Uh, the oxygen rich atmosphere makes the cotton burn fast and burn hot. Bondarenko realizes he's got to put out this fire. So he does what any of us would do he tries to punch the fire to death with the sleeves of his coveralls, which are made of wool. <clears throat> Uh-oh. Predict. Yeah, predictably, this does not go so well for for Comrade Bondarenko. And you might be asking yourself, hey, wouldn't he have had people monitoring him in case something like this were to happen? You know, to let him out in case there was some kind of disaster? Well, the answer is that he does indeed have people monitoring him, but there's nothing they can do. Because he's in a pressurized chamber, they can't even open the door until the lengthy process of depressurization has been completed. This is a process that takes almost a half an hour. So Bondarenko is in this thing, 50% oxygen, fighting fire demons from Dark Souls while the scientists outside are going through this whole process of depressurization. And I am sad to report Bondarenko's skillful battle against the fire demons was indeed a losing one. Uh, Nearly all of his clothes were completely burned up as the oxygen fed the fire. But when they finally pulled him out of the chamber, miraculously, he was still alive, but nearly his entire body was covered with third burns. Um, And when he was taken to treatment, the attending doctor literally couldn't find an undamaged blood vessel to insert a needle for the IV drip of painkillers and medicine. The only place he found where he could safely begin an injection was the soles of Bondarenko's feet, which had been protected by the soles of his flight boots. So... As you can imagine, Bondarenko is just in complete agony and attending his bedside in the attempt to soothe him is none other than Yuri Gagarin, the first man in space who watched Bondarenko die from shock after 16 hours of pure wretched suffering.
2: Um,
0: Bondarenko died this way right before Gagarin's very eyes, literally less than three weeks before Gagarin would launch aboard the first man mission to space. Three weeks. That's, that, to me, is insane.
1: <laughs> wow. That's not a great way to get hyped up.
0: No. So, here's, the, here's the, uh, the closer to this story. Bondarenko was posthumously awarded the Order of the Red Star for his sacrifice, but it was not heavily publicized because it didn't, they didn't want anyone to know that the space program was like literally two dudes in a trailer putting, you know, Legos together. In fact, Bondarenko's memory was scrubbed from photos of the team of cosmonauts. Um, film he, films he appeared in vanished. Uh, and his wife had... No, and his child had no answers, of course. They would, he just vanished and they wouldn't know what happened to him for nearly 30 years. Jeez. I know. Thanks, Soviets. But in 1980, the story, actually, the story did actually break in the West. But it wouldn't be until another six years had passed uh, that the Russian people would finally know what had happened to Valentin Bondarenko, which is, I mean, okay, enough about Soviets. That's the tale of Valentin Bondarenko, the cosmonaut who was killed by a hot plate.
1: Wow, that is sad. Jeez. I know,
0: right? What a story, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> But I think the the thing that made me want to cover that story is the fact that Yuri Gagarin had to watch him die three weeks before going into space. Not even just a pressure chamber, like space. You know? Yeah,
1: that's Woo! that's a hell of a hell of a preparation.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, wow. Okay. So yep. where were we? Oh yeah. So Charles, our boy Charles, has just in, has just um, inherited from his father Pepin this. uh, this office as mayor of um, the western or sorry, eastern kingdom of the Franks. Um, okay, even though it's it's technically all together, but you still have separate kingdoms with these mayors, even when they're all united together. Um, it's a very confusing system, but in any case, so Pepin dies, Charles is his son, so it's obvious he's going to become mayor after him. But since Pepin just died, who was a very, very powerful leader and very effective at unifying things, everyone thought this would probably be a great time to try to break away again. Um, You know, Uh, right in the in the chaos of an important leader dying. Right. So Charles immediately was going to have to deal with rebellions. And he probably would have if it hadn't been for his stepmom, Plectruda, who had him nabbed and locked in a cell so oh. that she could have her grandson, Theodewald, who was only six, what? succeed Pepin as mayor. What a crazy so, lady! Yeah, so Plectruda was the second wife of Pepin, and Charles was a child by Pepin's first wife. So Plectruda already has a grandson from that from her marriage to Pepin, and she wants her grandson to succeed. So she has Charles basically kidnapped and locked in a cell.
0: Truly a lawless wasteland.
1: Yeah, even though Theodwald is only six, so obviously if Theodwald is mayor, that means Plectruda's the one actually running the show.
0: Right. Because the six year
1: old be... isn't exactly
0: ready for that. Right. What do you call that? It's a Regency. A regency. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Meanwhile, oh, fuck!
0: Sorry, massive bug just flew onto my computer. How are you <laughs> still alive? Jesus, it's cold out here. Sorry. <laughs> Meanwhile, uh,
1: the king. Because remember, there is a king. Um, his name is Dagobert the Third wants to get out of the control of the mayor because remember for a long time now the kings have had no power and the mayor has been the one who's calling the shots but he decides with pep and dead maybe this is my chance to actually like have some authority myself so he appoints some other dude named Ragenfrid as the mayor of the palace in neustria as a sort of declaration of independence from the Pippinids, that he didn't appoint someone from that family, you know, like Charles, who's locked in a cell. Right. Um, So you have three separate things going on here. So you have Charles, who's the one who should be inheriting authority from Pepin, but he's locked in a cell by his stepmom who wants her grandson Theodorwald to inherit. And then you have the technical king who's decided this is a good time to try to exert his authority and has chosen some other dude named Ragenfrid to be the mayor of the Neustria half of the Frankish kingdom.
2: Gotcha. So you have three
1: different factions here. Um, so Ragenfrid and the Neustrians with King Dagobert have a battle with the forces of Theodwald. I.e., the forces of Plectruda, um, right. near Cologne, which is, w- which is a city that Plectruda had just kind of taken over and is where she had Charles locked up. Um, mm. Well, Ragenfrid wins, so Neustria is basically now independent of the rest of the Frankish kingdom at that point, and Plectruda and Theodwald go back to Cologne, Ragenfrid and Dagobert go back to Neustria. Well, soon after this, Charles actually escapes from Cologne, and the nobles of Austrasia vote for him to be the mayor of the palace, which is what was expected in the first place, because he was, you know, Pepin's eldest son. Right. But, obviously, Plectruda and Theodwald didn't accept this, so they just kept their little thing going in Cologne, which, by pure coincidence, happens to be where most of the treasure of the Pippinid family was stored. So, Uh-oh. maybe that's why they took over Cologne in particular. Mm. And then uh, Dagobert, who's the king and is over in Neustria, dies and is succeeded by Chilperic, who is still on board with this whole thing? Sorry, independ- sorry. I just heard Chilperic. Okay. <laughs> it's Chilperic. Chilperic. Okay. But he's not chill, as we will find out. Um, is he
0: a prick? Yes.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> so Chilperic succeeds Dagobert. And Chilperic is still on board with Ragenfrid Rag and, and the whole Neustrian independence thing. So they ally with a neighboring non Frankish king, Radbod, king of the Frisians, <laughs> who presumably had a Radbod. <laughs> you beat me to it. <laughs> I, see, I, I anticipated where you would go with that. Oh, man. So our, uh, our three stooges of. Chilperic, <laughs> Ragenfrid, and Radbod all decide to attack Cologne to try to get all that family wealth that Plectruda is hoarding. Well, Charles is also trying to figure out what to do about Plectruda, and so he's kind of hanging out around Cologne, having newly been elected as mayor. Um, but he wasn't prepared for a invasion to happen while he was scoping out Cologne, and so he wasn't able to put together a very large force or really prepare. He just has like his little group with him, and so he's defeated by Ragenfrid and Radbod as they're coming up to Cologne. And this is the only time in his entire life that Charles ever loses a battle. Wow. Um so mm. Charles is defeated and has to flee. Uh Chilperic, Ragenfrid, and Radbod continue besieging Cologne until finally Plectruda just gives them most of the treasure. At which point, they're like, cool, and they decide they're just gonna fuck off back to Neustria with the treasure. (laughs) They got what they wanted. But... The treasure never makes it to Neustria. What? Um, Charles wasn't about to see his family's wealth carted off to France, so after his initial loss, and he'd had to to run away, he retreated into the mountains, and while the Neustrians were besieging Cologne, he gathered and trained as many soldiers still loyal to his family as he could find. Damn. And so in April of 716, as Chilperic and the gang was headed back to France uh Charles's much 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 smaller force engages with it and all that training in the mountains pays off and Charles is able to pull off the very risky strategic maneuver of feinting a retreat hmm. in order to draw out the enemy and make them overconfident so it's risky because it's you can't really pretend to retreat like you have to actually be retreating so it's a super risky thing to do because chances are, if you don't get everything just right and have di- and your men are super disciplined, your fake retreat is actually going to end up being a real retreat. Right, right, um, right. It's hard to, you know, once you say, okay, we're retreating, it's hard to turn that into not a retreat. But all that training in the mountains paid off, and so they feign to retreat, and they draw out the enemy— Um, and make them overconfident, because, you know, they have superior numbers, they've just captured all this stuff, and they think, oh, look at this crappy little force, and so they basically chase them, and once they're all strung out and disorganized, um... Charles hits them simultaneously from different sides while they're exposed with small attack forces and just absolutely routes this larger force. And so Charles secures the treasure, which had been his family's, and he also secures his own reputation as a capable general because this was a extremely impressive military feat he pulled off.
0: That's so badass. He just went to the mountains with the boys and lifted yeah. for a few months. <laughs> exactly. And then, <laughs> and then they're like, okay, we're going to go take on this massive army and we're going to take all their shit. And then they did it. (laughs) Yeah.
1: It really is pretty cool. So during the three stooges invasion, um, Radbod, who was still a pagan, um, did a lot of sacking of towns and burning of churches and killing of priests and monks, which didn't really make the population super enthusiastic about King Chilperic, since he's the one who brought Radbod into it in the first place. (laughs) Um, but I want to do a little digression about Radbod here cuz he's a crazy crazy figure. So he almost converted to Catholicism, but at the last minute he decided not to because, and this is what he said, he preferred to spend eternity in hell with his own ancestors than in heaven with Franks.
0: <laughs> I mean, I'm not a big fan of the Franks either, but come on.
1: <laughs> like yeah, and, and it's funny because you know these are literally the neighboring tribe, which are extremely similar to the Franks in most ways, um, the <laughs> Frisians. So it's just funny that you have, It's you know it's kind of like um, the Grandpa on the Simpsons, who's like, you know, I'll be cold and dead in the ground before I recognize Missouri. <laughs> So yeah, Radbod was quite a character. Um, Anyway, so the whole Radbod killing priests and burning churches thing kind of brought a lot of people over to Charles' side. And so with Charles in a really good position now, because he won that big victory, he got the treasure, and the other side was helping him a lot by being dicks, um, he's really on the ascendancy. So Charles sends a message to Chilperic over in Neustria and says that they could forget all this ever happened if Chilperic would just be chill and accept Charles's right to be mayor of the palace in Austrasia. Well, Chilperic tells him to fuck off. So Charles invades Neustria and he crushes Chilperic and Ragenfrid in battle, but rather than pursuing them all the way back to their capital at Paris where they're running to, he actually doubles back to cologne to deal with stepmom Uh um and with his power so much increased uh cologne was easily taken barely put up any resistance and plectruda was actually allowed to enter a monastery instead of being punished He's like you can't really be involved in you know politics anymore after all this shit but i don't want to hurt you so just go stay in that monastery and i'll pretend this didn't happen and it's like okay so she does and likewise um his Step nephew, I guess. Uh, little Theodorold also wasn't harmed, but was actually unofficially adopted by Charles, who took him into his own house, and he he later was a a commander in Charles's army. Wow! Yeah, Charles is really kind of a bro. This like is, uh... lifting with the boys in the mountains, being merciful to enemies. Like he's cool. <laughs> no, he is cool. Um. So with um with Chilperic. Having been, you know, militarily defeated that one time, but still refusing to just give it all up, uh, Charles proclaims a new king, um, a guy named Clothar, because Franks just name everyone things that start with C's, right? Um, as the replacement to Chilperic. But Chilperic responds by making an alliance with the ruler of another of the Frankish sub-kingdoms, a man named Odo the Great, Duke of Aquitaine, who had just sort of become independent while everyone else was fighting. Like, as the civil war is happening up north, he just kind of pieced out and became independent since everyone else was distracted. Um, So he he becomes an ally of Chilperic, and he and Chilperic then invade the north and get absolutely wrecked by Charles, who just intensely trains and practices his army, which is pretty unusual at this time. Usually it's kind of a seasonal thing. It's like, up oh, time to go to war. And you pick up your weapons and you go and fight. And when you're not at war, you're not really doing military things. But Charles actually makes a professional army, like they're training constantly. And so, of course, they're incredibly effective and are just
0: wrecking opponents. He learned from his time in the mountains yep yep yep
1: so um they get wrecked and chilperic and the gang fled back south to odo's little independent kingdom slash dukedom but soon after this uh clothar who has been charles's candidate for king actually dies um and odo decides it's time to make the best of a bad situation so he actually just nabs his former ally chilperic and sends him to charles in exchange for charles recognizing his independent dukedom of aquitaine in the south. Ah. Um and here it's just it's, here's what's crazy though. What do you think Charles did with Chilperic? Uh well, probably something nice. Exactly. He said that he would let him keep being king as long as he recognized Charles as the mayor of the palace for all the Frankish kingdom, which Chilperic agrees to finally. Nice. And Charles also makes peace with Ragenfrid, who had gone into hiding and comes back. And here's a, this is a quote from a historian about this. Um, I just want to read out this quote. Either Charles Martel possessed a degree of decency and kindness to defeated foes unknown in that age, or his belief in himself was so great that he felt he could afford kindness as the ultimate show of strength in allowing them to live after their various plots and machinations against him
0: Damn I kind of like both of them.:
1: yeah, exactly. both of those are both of those are pretty baller. Um, it might
0: be both. You know? It probably
1: was both honestly yeah. so with things sort of settled down there, Charles then turns his attention to the east to the east. East border of the kingdom of Austrasia, where the pagan Saxons, who are their neighbors, had taken advantage of the civil war to do tons of raiding and pillaging and burning and murdering on the borders of Austrasia. So, in 718, Charles invades and just ravages the Saxon regions that are bordering the Franks. You know, like tears down. All their encampments and their towns and pretty much like we are just going to clear this area out because you guys have been coming from here and murdering people in my kingdom. And eventually they're forced into a battle, which, of course, Charles decisively wins. And that fun fact is at Teutoburg Forest, where the famous, you know, massacre of the Roman legions happened. Interesting. Um, But yeah, so Charles settles that whole border issue and things are now chill over there. In 719, uh, Radbod, the Frisian, dies, um, and Charles takes over his kingdom without really any fight because the Frisians had previously been ruled by the Franks uh, before Radbod had actually broken away and declared independence, and the people weren't super keen to try fighting Charles anymore because, like, his reputation is definitely preceding him at this point as just a absurdly good general. Yeah. So people are like, you know what? it's cool. We'll, we'll become part of the kingdom. Like it's fine. You don't need to come
0: here. Please don't kill us.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And so people are really, really just pretty fine with this, except apparently for Ragenfred, who, despite the fact that Charles had been merciful to him and had spared him, decides to lead his city that he rules and Jew in a rebellion. Ragenfred's rebellion was barely even a speed bump for Charles. However, (laughs) and, and I just, I just don't get it. He lets Ragenfred keep his city. As long as Ragenfred's sons were sent to live in Charles's household as an insurance policy. It's like, seriously, this guy has rebelled twice now, and you're just fine. Like it really is amazing how it's, Charles how non vindictive
0: Charles is. No, he's it's he's like the chillest, nicest, he just goes out there, he takes over these come on Raganfred Ragenfred, dude. Really, again, you know, seriously. On, you know, I just you know what, man, I get it. I get it. <laughs> But, you know, this can't keep going on. So now I'm going to have to take your boys and they're going to have to live with me, but you're going to be fine and you can have visiting rights every other weekend. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. So Charles
1: then has spent the next decade or so, um, solidifying and expanding Frankish power, all technically in the name of a series of Kings who had zero power, um, he eventually, however, ends up back in conflict with Odo of Aquitaine in 731. But um, in the decade before that, really the whole decade leading up to this, so the 720s, Odo, um, did I say Otto? I meant Odo. Odo, who's ruling Aquitaine, which is in the south of France, had been fighting almost constantly with Arab attacks from the recently established and aggressively expanding muslim caliphate in spain which had destroyed and swallowed up the kingdoms of uh, the christian kingdoms on the iberian peninsula. Hmm. And they're very aggressive and expansionist and so right. they've been attacking aquitaine since that's the you know the first part of france you hit nonstop. Um and odo won some significant victories. Um the biggest one was Toulouse in I think 721. Um, but they were, but he was almost always on the defensive because they're just constantly attacking right. Right. And after a pretty brutal defeat in 732, um, Odo sends messages to Charles saying that he's ready to accept Charles's authority, but that he needs help because there's a larger Muslim force invading, and they they need to do something about this. So uh Charles uh, responds very quickly. He prepares his army, gets the boys together, and they march south. Um, avoiding using the Roman roads, because remember all of Europe is crisscrossed with the Roman road system, Uh, but they don't use any of the roads. They take, you know, secret ways through forests and mountains because they don't want to be observed by any spies. Um, and so when the Arab army, uh, which is under Abd al-Rahman approaches Tours, which is in central France, so they've worked their way really far up, you know, burning and destroying and murdering as they went, um... They get they're approaching Tours, which is a pretty prosperous city that they're intending to loot and burn. They're very surprised to find a large, well equipped, professional army that they had no idea even existed drawn up in ranks directly in their path to get to the city. Shit. Yeah. And uh the Franks, in addition, were also holding a position which was shielded on the sides by trees and had slopes in front of them. So they're in like the mother of all tactically favorable positions.
0: I was going to say and, this is like a major buzzkill for for the Muslim army.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, cuz you know, they they don't even know this army exists. Like they have no idea that this and because they've avoided taking any of the, you know, the visible paths, no spies even saw them. So like this is just out of nowhere. It's like, "Oh, fuck." Yeah. So Even though Al-Rahman had uh, significant superiority numbers, probably around two to one, um, he didn't know that because he had no no idea how big Charles's army was uh, due to the the strategy of concealment which they'd used. And, you know, as they're up in this position, which is shielded, he can't even tell how big this army is. But Al-Rahman's lust for plunder and murder made him determined to sack tours one way or another. So he's like, okay, we're going to we're going to do it. We're going to have a battle. But Charles, whom all the chroniclers later end up calling Charles Martel, Charles the Hammer, he had been preparing for this moment since the Battle of Toulouse ten years earlier when Odo had stopped a similar, though smaller, invasion. Like, Charles had been taking notes and was like, I've got to be, this is going to happen again, and I've got to be fucking ready. Um, and he was. So even though he is outnumbered and he doesn't have any heavy cavalry, which is kind of the the tanks of warfare at this point, right. like the cavalry are what you use aggressively, um, he has no heavy cavalry, but he has a very determined corps of tough, battle-hardened infantry, many of whom had been fighting with him for 15 years, who believed in him as a leader and whom he had rigorously trained and disciplined
0: that's worth more than 2 um, to 1.
1: Yeah. And so the failure of Arab intelligence, you know, extended to the fact that not only were they unaware this army existed, they had no idea how good this army was. Like even though okay, they saw it, they're they're a little worried, they don't know where it's from. They have no idea what they're facing because they probably expect it's a, you know, it's sort of a hastily put together, you know, sort of militia levy. Like they're they're not prepared for what's coming. Yeah. Um you know charles had been training these guys for a decade and he'd been gathering intelligence on it on his own so he is well aware of how the caliphate works the strengths and weaknesses of their forces and they meanwhile know literally nothing about the franks because they they viewed essentially all these people as illiterate barbarians who were beneath them and barely human and weren't worth knowing about meanwhile charles has been studying yeah so, oh. Charles's army forms into basically a phalanx position on top of this ridge, and Charles's men were able to withstand repeated cavalry charges, which is almost unheard of at this point in history for infantry to withstand cavalry. Right. And, furthermore, even though the Arab cavalry actually does break through the formation a few times his men are disciplined and they hold the ranks and don't break formation, which that's how battles usually end at this point. Once you break through somewhere, it all collapses, everybody runs, and then you chase them down and kill them. Like in the ancient world and up to this point, it's thought that probably like three quarters of the casualties happen after one side has broken and is running away. I've heard that. yeah. Yeah. And so the, You know, the Arabs are expecting if they can just break through, it'll all fold up. But they do break through a few times. And guess what? It doesn't fold up. Um, So those who did break through found themselves in a position where they weren't about to ride down broken and fleeing enemies as they expected. But rather, they are surrounded on all sides by hardened, iron-willed Franks who are ready to just cut them down. Well, that's horrifying. Yeah, so like, uh, they, they are not not prepared for this yeah um so at one point uh, a group of arab troops um breaks through into this square formation and tries to actually kill charles himself but uh, he's got his liege men because remember this is early feudalism so he has sort of the the people who are sworn to protect him and they're called his liege men um and they're they're like forming sort of a ring around him and just weathering all these assaults this little group right around charles and these, uh, these well-trained Frankish soldiers accomplish what was thought to be just completely impossible, which is infantry defeating heavy cavalry.
0: That's amazing
1: meanwhile during this Charles had sent scouts around to flank behind the Muslim army and get to their camp and they start freeing the thousands of slaves which were held in the Muslim camp because they've been you know obviously taking slaves as they pillaged and so they're ta- they're freeing the slaves and they're taking the plunder which had been looted from a- on the march across France and so when the troops of the caliphate who are up in battle get word that all their loot and all their slaves are being lost they just start to rush back to the camp to try to save their stuff and al-rahman tries to stop his army from withdrawing to the camp to save their stuff but once some people start running back it just becomes a route as the original group which was just panicking over their lost slaves and trying to prevent that ends up just with the whole army just folding and withdrawing as the momentum of the retreat is growing the franks start pushing forward down the hill advancing just far enough to slaughter the panicking al-rahman who's desperately trying to keep his army in line and then they return to formation on the hill and just let the muslims run jesus (laughs) And when the sun rose the next day, Charles was ready for round two. Like, he's like, okay, let's keep doing this. But he found that during the night, the forces of the Caliphate had all fled and just been like, nope, we are fucking out. Holy shit. And so I want to read you something. This is a piece from a almost contemporary chronicle of the event. This was written less than 20 years after by someone who was living in the Arab Caliphate in Spain. Are you ready for this? I am. So... While Abd al-Rahman was pursuing Odo, and he decided to despoil Tours by destroying its palaces and burning its churches. There he confronted the consul of Austrasia by the name of Charles, a man who, having proved himself to be a warrior from his youth and an expert in things military, had been summoned by Odo. After each side had tormented the other with raids for almost seven days, they finally prepared their battle lines and fought fiercely. The northern peoples remained as immobile as a wall, holding together like a glacier in the cold regions. In the blink of an eye, they annihilated the Arabs with the sword. The people of Austrasia, greater number of soldiers and formidably armed, killed the king, Abd al-Rahman, when they found him.
0: Damn. Immobile as a wall.
1: God. Holding together like a glacier. Yeah. Like <laughs> yeah. Holy shit. So anyway... Abed al-Rahman got vibe-checked. I was going to say. Hard. <laughs> yeah, he, he got nay <laughs> So, after this amazing victory, um, oh. Charles went on, as he had begun, strengthening and expanding the Frankish Empire as the mayor of the palace. Because he's not the king. But after the Merovingian king, Theuderic IV, died in 737, Charles didn't appoint a successor and actually just left the throne empty. So he still wasn't king, But there wasn't a king, um, because he decided at this point, like, he is the man. He doesn't need a king to even for, you know, for sort of, uh, figurehead purposes. He's just fine leaving it without a king. He doesn't claim to be king. He just doesn't appoint a new king. Right. And, um, finally, on October 22nd, 741, Charles Martel dies after appointing his sons, um, To take over his not-kingdom. right? Uh, Pepin, who was known as Pepin the Short, was going to rule in the west, so France, basically. Mm -hmm. And Carloman was to rule in the east, so Germany. And these brothers, um, as mayors of the palace, do decide to appoint a new king, finally. And so they appoint Childeric III as king of the Franks, but of course they're the ones who are really ruling. And Pepin and Carloman are they're kind of they're their game changers in Europe because these are people they inherit a extremely strong and powerful kingdom but they had both been highly educated by monks and um, at Charles's insistence, and they were brought up to be learned, wise, and extremely Catholic rulers. And they lived up to their expectations. Um, they were very active in improving education and legal institutions, and sort of the structure and administration of their kingdom, as well as actively encouraging church reform and promoting missionary evangel- evangelization of pagan neighbors. Um, Though, of course, they were also hard and experienced rulers who were willing to be ruthless when necessary. But they're kind of something new, is that they're active promoters of things like education and reform, who are kings. That's awesome. Well, they're not kings. Not kings, as we established. But, yeah. Um, Carloman, the one who rules Germany, is actually so devoted to uh, religion and study that in 747, he decides that he's going to enter a monastery to devote his life to prayer and study. And so he leaves the East in control of his son, Drogo, as the successor, as mayor of the palace. But really, it's clear that, you know, Pepin is going to be the power in the kingdom, not his, you know, not the young son. Right, um, right. So in 751, Pepin uh, decides that the whole farcical king of the Franks versus mayor of the palace thing had just gotten kind of old. Uh, but he didn't want to upset anyone, so he actually he consulted the pope. He consulted the nobility, and he just talked to pretty much everyone who all agreed that it had gotten kind of ridiculous at this point. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So with the papal go-ahead, Pepin removed Childeric as king and told him he had to become a priest and stuck him in a monastery. (laughs) And uh, then an assembly of Frankish nobles elected Pepin as king of the Franks. So finally, for the first time in literally hundreds of years, the one who's exercising power is also the king. And Pepin is anointed and crowned as king in a ceremony which was planned out by his friend, the Irish monk Virgilius of Salzburg. because remember we talked about how the Irish monks were just going all over Europe, founding yeah. institutions and teaching and stuff. Yeah. And so this guy's in Sol- from you know Salzburg,, um, which is in Austria, but he's an Irish monk, and he has a copy of the Irish um, text of canon Law um so the sort of the irish version of church law from which he takes this ritual for the ceremony of anointing and coronation which is kind of cool that
0: it's an irish ceremony well we, is done. everyone knows we love the irish at this point point.
1: Yep. and then this coronation is later confirmed in another ceremony by the pope who travels up from rome to perform it and so there were a few rebellions to put down um because most people, as I said, were fine with him taking over being king, but there were some discontents, mostly among the family, strangely enough, um, including Carloman's son, Drogo. Um, He tries to rebel in Germany, and it doesn't really go anywhere because obviously Pepin is the much stronger power. And so Pepin's reign starts off on very solid footing, and he builds upon this legacy that was left to him by his father, Charles Martel, Charles the Hammer, and he passes on an even greater Frankish empire to his son, Charles the Great, better known to us as Charlemagne.
0: Oof. Man, I got chills. <laughs> yeah, so what do you think? That's some serious shit. Oh, man. That uh, that whole thing about, like, Pepin building up the empire under the legacy of his father, who was just an absolute baller, passing it down to his son who we all know the name of charlemagne like man yeah like you have to be pretty
1: baller to have the word the great literally incorporated into part of your name like charlemagne literally means you know charles magnus charles the great yeah it's literally it's he's so fucking baller that great becomes part of his given name charlemagne
0: (laughs) that's incredible (laughs)
1: Yeah. Man. No, it's, it's, it's something else. And this is, you know, the whole period between the Roman empire and like the middle ages proper, as we think of them is something a lot of people know nothing about. So I thought it'd be really cool to kind of give a, a particular picture of the kind of stuff that's going on at that time.
0: Well, I think it was, I think you did a good job and we were talking prior to the show, everybody about making this a, uh, a two-parter. We're not going to do that this time. Cause we've been doing that a lot, but I think we've set ourselves up for in the future, George, I think you're going to have to do a Charlemagne episode.
1: Yeah, no, I think so. And I think we've, I think this was a good self-contained episode, like it has an ending, but it's also the background that will allow us to glide into a Charlemagne episode at some undetermined time in the future. Maybe never. (laughs) I'm just kidding. No, no, I think it's definitely going to (laughs) happen. It's going to happen. It's (laughs) going to happen.
0: It's going to happen. All right, well, thanks for thanks for sharing that story with us, uh, George. And I think it's time to head to the service because I am falling asleep even though oh, I was How
1: can you be falling asleep with no, this
0: amazing story? No, like I'm coming down from the high. Like I, I <laughs> woke right up when we started talking about the the Battle of Tours. <laughs> you know, man, yeah. it was a it was a wild ride. Holy <laughs> that's shit. that's for sure. Well, yeah,
1: let's uh, let's uh, let's pack it up for the night. All right. Off we go so aaron how are you enjoying the actual seasons that you have in the north
0: uh i'll tell you what i i'll start hating it in march but right now it's kind of kind of like a fun game like oh you know it's like it's forty four degrees out there right now. I can probably stay in the trailer tonight. Oh, it's twenty degrees. I've got to figure out a way to survive, or I will literally die. Ah, <laughs> uh, um, yes,
1: you're playing chicken with the temperature.
0: That's literally what I'm doing
1: <laughs> excellent so what uh what are you most excited about right now? having the big move is done like what's 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 Aaron excited about?
0: I don't know, man. There's just a lot of potential around here. I think probably the best thing is just like being around people I grew up with and, you know, being close to family members and being able to leech off of them like the leech I am, you know. um, Excellent, excellent. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, let me ask you, what do you have planned for the rest of the day? Um, Well, there's not
1: much left of the day, but I have to finish reading a book for a seminar and... I have to look over a bunch of homework from students, and I think that's about it for today.
2: Hmm. So yeah, not really so nothing
1: at all exciting. I should also probably clean my apartment, because right now it is an absolute vile den of perversion, because <laughs> I've been super busy this week, so I like haven't been cleaning up at all, so there's just like Pop-Tart wrappers <laughs> everywhere, and like piles of empty espresso cups, and it, it's just bad.
0: Wow, dude. Man. I wish I could relate. I literally don't have an apartment right now, so there's that. Um, and on that note, I think it's time to bring the show to an end. Uh, bring the show to an end for today. If you hate us, you're probably right. So consider funding the show by becoming a patron on Patreon.com, or if Patreon is not your thing, drop us a little tip in Venmo. That's at wtadp. Of course, the best thing you can do, the best thing you can do, is share this show with your friends and even your enemies, because well, fuck them, right? Uh, like, rate, subscribe, write us a review, put us, give us a thumbs up on Spotify. I don't know how any of this works. Um, but just remember, that's the best thing you can do, and tips are always appreciated. Our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. And with all that being said, we'll close out and let the sounds of the Battle of Tours
2: play you out. Du warst lebe, ich mir werde, sie mit Sünden leugelt sie. Das wäre Land, wohnt euch die Erde, denn man so viel. One day,